My grandfather was born in uh, Mexico. My grandmother was born in New Mexico. My father was born in the territory of Arizona, and I was born in a state. Mm -hmm. And of the first three, they were all born in exactly the same place, Old Rivey, mm -hmm. which describes what's happened, what seems to be ancient history to us today mm -hmm. was all still real in our family. Because it belongs to our culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess it's like the Hopis and they're weaving their blankets. Mm -hmm. It's a part of their culture. They want to take it. So I can understand the importance. We don't have very many things left. Mm -hmm. So many things that were taken away from us. Hi, and welcome to Articulated. I'm Gabby Seno, and I am an oral history intern for the Archives of American Art. This podcast receives support from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. Since 1958, the Archives of American Art has been building the largest collection of oral histories related to the visual arts in the world. These more than 2,500 long-form interviews give witness to history as it unfolded the voices of the figures who shaped and reimagined it. This episode is the first in a series of six, each curated by a different contemporary artist in response to, and in conversation with, past speakers from the Archives' oral history program. Our first guest is Lehua Uakea, a native Hawaiian interdisciplinary artist. In their dispatch from the archives, they braid a narrative with the 2010 oral histories of Catherine Lehua Domingo and Al Puyawema, exploring the contours of traditional and contemporary modalities in indigenous making. Listen to this history through Lehua Uakea's headphones. Aloha mai kako. My name is Lehua Uakea. I'm a native Hawaiian artist, cultural practitioner, and kapa or bark cloth maker. I'm originally from Papaiko on the big island of Hawaii, and I'm now based in the Pacific Northwest. My work touches on themes of cultural revitalization and the expression of mixed indigenous heritage and often blurs the line between the traditional and the contemporary. As an indigenous artist and culture bearer, I am all too familiar with the narrative of challenges and obstacles that Native peoples face in the preservation and continuation of traditions, practices, languages, and ways of being. Some of these challenges stem from the pressures of external consumption, appropriation, and the choice not to share certain aspects of one's work as a means of protection against those mounting pressures. In a world of contemporary art and craft, where a Native artist wrestles with the push and pull of wanting to put their work in different spaces while also needing to protect their own cultural integrity, creatives are constantly asked to find new solutions. As elder Native Hawaiian Lauhala weaver, Catherine Kalehua Puakeaula, or Lehua Domingo, discussed in her 2010 interview with Mija Raidel, we learn how these challenges have come up in her own lifetime. For example, 
with her ideas on the effects of appropriated and stolen weaving knowledge. Um, I, I think that we didn't see that many different styles when I was young. Mm -hmm. And I guess because they wove for necessities. Mm -hmm. So they, if they got fancy, whichever, it was probably just for within the family I or see. of that concept. Mm -hmm. Maybe not that much for selling as much as, you know, just putting mm -hmm. them out. Mm -hmm. Whereas today, oh, you have a wide variety, many weavers, mm -hmm. many, many new ones mm -hmm. that are interested mm -hmm. and do beautiful work, mm -hmm. beautiful work. Now it's gone. Yes. It's gone, yes. And I think it's a, it's a huge asset that it has. Because at one time it was felt that it was good to be lost. Mm -hmm. Art of weaving. So we've got to be careful too. Because in Gladys, Auntie Esther, Auntie Elizabeth, reviving it. Mm -hmm. And really sitting down, you know, sharing the knowledge with as many as they could share it with, teaching others, having them become teachers. I have a question about sharing the tradition with others so it wouldn't be lost. Something that you mentioned was that Auntie Gladys at one point was going to write a book and then she decided not to um, because she didn't want the tradition to be lost in another way beyond people yeah. of Hawaii is my understanding of it. That seems like a, a, a difficult middle ground to, to navigate. How, how does one choose how to share that tradition and help it grow? But there was at the same time a, a decision not to make a book. I've thought of that myself too. Mm -hmm. It's going to be hard. Mm -hmm. But I can understand why mm -hmm. it's important. Mm -hmm. Because it belongs to our culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess it's like the Hopis and their weaving, mm -hmm. their blankets. Mm -hmm. It's a part of their culture. Right. And I only wish that, you know, people throughout the world can be respectful of that. Mm -hmm. But today, they want they want to take it. So I can understand the importance. We don't have very many things left. Mm -hmm. So many things that were taken away from us. As this elder shares, choosing to teach and pass on certain cultural traditions is to carry a large amount of responsibility. And with that comes the agency to decide when, where, and how this knowledge is perpetuated through one's family line or community. With the halau on Molokai, mm -hmm. first lesson in hat making, mm -hmm. they only got to the pickle, mm -hmm. putting it together. There were 24 of them in the class. Mm -hmm. And I um, just had, because it's uh, three sets of four, is the rule of thumbs for the pickle. Mm -hmm. I divided all of them. So then into that groups of four, mm -hmm. so they would be working together. Mm -hmm. So they just got through that first step of 
putting their pickle together. Mm -hmm. But there was no time after that to right. continue. Mm -hmm. We had present on lay making at that fresh flower lay making also mm -hmm. during the time of the, the class for the hat weaving mm -hmm. of Molokai. Mm -hmm. But other than that, we've had classes here, Kalai Kilana, twice a year, where several of us weavers will come, and then the word goes out that we are here, and whoever wants to come in there stops by to learn. We teach them from the tree, because Kilana has trees going here, mm -hmm. go out to the tree so that they can learn. What leaves? The good leaves. Mm -hmm. If we don't have, uh, if Kilohana's trees are not ready for us to work with the trees, mm -hmm. then we'll, I'll usually come with a bundle of dried, of lavala, uh, mm -hmm. so that they can learn mm -hmm. what, how to tell which determine good leaves mm -hmm. and not good leaves. Mm -hmm. And then take them through the starting process mm -hmm. before they start to weep. Mm -hmm. We filmed all Christmas ornaments mm -hmm. and we usually have people from within the community. Mm -hmm. But I don't really have classes for saying um, weaving classes, hold them, you know, monthly or whichever. I prefer a one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. I had a gentleman from Waimea, Kimo, who met me in um, Hilo Hatties one day, and I was wearing Dad's hat, and he asked me who wove the hat. I said I did. So he asked if I could teach him. <laughs> I told him I wasn't a teacher. That you know, I just am learning. And he said, Oh, he really wants to learn to make a hat. Kimo came for three years. He made three hats. His third hat was the Anoni hat. Mm -hmm. And that was his goal. Mm -hmm. He completed the hat. His wife wears the hat today proudly. Mm -hmm. And he stands on the side also proudly because he made the hat for his wife. of course, the challenges that artists and practitioners like Lehua Domingo must navigate are not exclusive to those of Native Hawaiian heritage. For example, contemporary Hopi potter and ceramicist Al Koyawema of Prescott, Arizona, shares his thoughts on the complexities of being a Native artist in a world vastly different than the environment his elders knew even just one or two generations ago. Even if we see all the media going on today, we think we have an understanding, but a lot of young people really have a trouble surviving mm -hmm. in this world because it's also economic as well. And you have to balance somehow gaining a degree of freedom because you still got to eat and have a place to live. But mm -hmm. uh, that, that's where uh, education and, and uh, not necessarily that it always leads to a good economic situation, but it's important part of our training for our young, Indian young people mm -hmm. 
we weren't used to an, an economy like we have today. We were a trading economy, and suddenly we've gone almost in one generation from a trading con economy to a money economy. Mm -hmm. I only touch on that because that's, a, that's an important part of our education. Uh, even today, we have lots of government programs to cover the mainstream population because of that. Meanwhile, we've got tribal people who have had to learn to survive. I mean, they, they didn't have the stores and, the, and anything in the modern economy, so we still survive on the reservation. Not that we couldn't survive better. We might look like Appalachia a little bit uh, in terms of our uh, buildings and housing and things, and yet that's the way we lived for thousands of years. So, mm -hmm. And we survived, and, and uh, a lot of us lived a long time. Uh, even without the modern medicine, mm -hmm. the education back comes back into it. The, in my case, it was uh, I, I picked up the technical because uh, what it allowed me to do was to focus on something that was kind of a universal language. Take mathematics; everybody mm -hmm. knows that math mm -hmm. is kind of a universal language. Mm -hmm. uh, almost everything outside of that is depends on your culture and your upbringing and what have you. What you're saying is the education has really been an essential, another through line I'm sure that will come up for us multiple times, but has, has been one of the great aids in helping you bridge those worlds. Yes, and, and bridge is a, a good thought. Um, I'll again refer to my own aunt, but it, it became part of my philosophy, and that is not to look down upon our older people who didn't have that kind of education. Mm -hmm. um, for for us, we we would learn something, uh, but it wasn't necessarily our part of our cultural education. It was it was part of our being able to live in the mainstream world education. Mm -hmm. The obstacles that challenge Native artists also have a way of shaping their practices, perspectives and approaches to working in different spaces away from their ancestral homelands. The complexities of being part of a diaspora community, or those who have, for one reason or another, left their homelands or reservations, are often painful for families and individuals to talk about, and as a result, many artists turn to creative outlets to articulate these feelings of cultural displacement and separation. So sometimes uh, it, our young people tend to get a little lost. I was going to mention the term, uh, I, I think of horizon children, mm -hmm. neither sky nor earth. A lot of times uh, Native American young people move away from reservations and are living in an urban area and they lose, they lose track of not only their relatives but whatever has gone on culturally previously. And they're a little bit lost. They lose track of the day-to-day things that happen in, in their own culture and language, what's happening in their families. They're trying to reach out, if they, particularly if they don't have, let's say, a really good educational background, they're just trying to reach out like everybody else on a day-to-day -day basis to live and, and survive. And uh, we all know what it's like surviving either in the inner city or even uh, uh, what you might call individuals who are intermediate income levels. Even, even today, people are finding it hard to match all the parts of their economic life with uh, the life they'd like to have. Did you grow up speaking in native language? Uh, only to the degree that I would pick it up uh, off the reservation because one of the components of the Indian school was to uh, really instruct the adults not to first of all, to speak their own language. Although my father spoke it, uh, 
but there had to be agreement within any family as to whether you were going to speak English or not, mm-hmm. which immediately leads me to an experience <laughs> that, I had, that I can think of on the Salt River Indian community doing a, uh, a lecture with uh, high school students, uh, college age, just at that age. A couple of girls were in that, and they were from the Salt River Indian community, and they started crying. Uh, and, and it was the same feeling, I guess we all have, namely that their parents said, okay, up to the sixth grade, we'll teach our traditions and the language. And then after that, you're going to have to be on your own. And you and basically, you pick up the ways of the Western world. And they were crying because, uh, as, I, as I learned, is because I was saying they really do have a role in the mainstream world and that they don't have to stop being who they were, not being counter to their parents, but... And I had two young Hopi boys that didn't say much, but I could tell that they were pretty moved, too. Uh, it's it's just one of those transitions that goes on. Language is one of those things that I wish we would spend more time. And Hopi, fortunately, we have a really incredible dictionary. And we have uh, Hopi speakers. Uh, and so we've really worked to maintain that language. But I wish I would have been in sort of that natural environment. But then if you live in Los Angeles and you're in third degree taking a streetcar down the street, there's nobody that speaks Hopi. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that as a practical matter, mm-hmm. uh, you don't think about it when you're young. You just mm-hmm. you go with what works as a young person, you know. There are an infinite amount of expressions that can be considered to be within the umbrella of Native art today, from those who create, for example, beadwork, or woven baskets, or textiles in their family living rooms, to those who carry on intergenerational practices as their primary means of income, to others who exhibit in institutions like museums and gallery spaces, and many more who lie beyond the conventional walls and labels that try to box artists in. However, regardless of where exactly their work is situated, these indigenous creatives occupy a rather intricate and difficult intersection, faced with navigating and negotiating issues of their own indigenous identity, asking questions of not being native enough or perhaps too native to fit into certain spaces. Or perhaps, in other cases, one might struggle with lack of access to modes of making that would have once been passed down from generation to generation in the home, had those lines of knowledge not been broken by the violent effects of colonization. Even further, the disconnect from ancestral lands, languages, and practices is something many of us are working to understand, dismantle, and heal through our art and daily lives. Despite the numerous obstacles that lie along the path of contemporary Native cultural reclamation and artistic expression, there are things to celebrate. We celebrate the practitioners working to keep ancestral knowledge systems and craft practices alive. We celebrate the individuals who speak their people's native tongue after generations of being forced into silence. And we celebrate the artists and creatives whose innovation and determination help forge new paths of telling our stories and a multitude of resilient expressions, each just as important as the other. Al Koyawema, like so many of these Native artists today, embodies resilience through a clay-based artistic practice informed in part by a heavy family history 
and his personal life on and away from Hopi territory. My grandfather was born in uh, Mexico. My grandmother was born in New Mexico. My father was born in the territory of Arizona, and I was born in a state. Mm-hmm. And of the first three, they were all born in exactly the same place, Old Rivey, which describes what's happened, what seems to be ancient history to us today mm-hmm. was all still real in our family Very and real. everything that had happened, the original Mexican, or I should say Spanish, and then the Mexicans mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the military, I'm speaking, right. uh, and, and then later the U.S. military came mm-hmm. in and the stories my father told. We were being treated by the U.S. military much like the Mexican military treated us, and, and we, we just... Uh, you know, looked at him at a distance. Mm-hmm. And uh, even today, there's expressions. I just saw one recently the other day about, you know, well, we've gone through this culture and that culture. We'll still be here and it'll be some other culture. It'll be around us. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know whether that's true or not, but there is that feeling mm-hmm. that, that we're permanent and everybody else is transient. And what is it, what was it about or were you even conscious of it being anything in particular about the clay that drew you, or did it just start as something that was slightly curious? It was just because uh, my aunt was becoming my mentor philosophically. Because mm-hmm. she was matching up the ancient world and the real world. She'd had practical experience of matching up worlds. Yes. And I, and I was one that needed to catch up and match up worlds. Mm-hmm. And, and so in that sense... My father hadn't really fully had that experience, and either and my mother, uh, so she had had far more experience at that. So the ceramics was an entrance to a cultural world. Yes, it was. I, I discovered uh, I, I liked it. On the other hand, individuals like Lehua Domingo celebrate resilience in the form of innovation, seeing the younger generations create new weaving techniques and patterns and building on a tradition while passing it down within the community. What changes have you seen in weaving in over your lifetime? I'm thinking that um, maybe styles. Mm-hmm. We were talking about the, I think a couple of young women from Kauai, yes, who did the, uh, the picos on the side of the hat, is yes. that right? Then the Anoni today, mm-hmm. um, Anoni, as I understand it, mm-hmm. only a few people did this type of weaving, mm-hmm. non-Anoni weaving, mm-hmm. um, kept secret the, their designs, so they didn't want to share it. Mm-hmm. And today, you know, it's open. Mm-hmm. And so I think the change, the biggest change is that non-Anoni, Hats mm-hmm. have really become popular. Yes. yes. It used to be just the one color. Mm-hmm. But today you have a variety of some of the styles, you know, that were for cotton mm-hmm. have been revived. Mm-hmm. And so you see the different styles available. Let's start this morning um, with a conversation about your experience in the Makaloa project. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I looked that up, we made reference to it yesterday, and it was uh, it was with the USGS. It was the US Geological Survey grant, and it was growing Makaloa in constructed wetlands for weaving and treating wastewater at the Greenwell Gardens, Greenwell Botanical Gardens, Esna Botanical Gardens, in conjunction with the Bishop Museum 
and a Hawaiian cultural institution, I think. And that Auntie Elizabeth Lee was working on that project. And it was 1993, I believe, 1995, somewhere in the mid-90s. Um, one of the participants selected to be involved in reviving the weaving portion of Makalaw. Mm -hmm. We uh, were volunteers. And at the time I was working at Pohono, the National Park, and oh, now, now. So I arranged with the park uh, to be able to do it on park time. And <clears throat> I would catalog what we were doing. There's no information of it that's written that's available on Makalo. So it was a large asset for the park to have that type of information. And so I logged a journal concept mm -hmm. of what we did, where we went, and uh, also try to do a grid on the size of the Makaloa. Mm For Al, much of his practice in ceramics and hand-built pottery became focused on experimenting with different compositions of clay and ash, and innovating new techniques for carving intricate details of old Hopi, Tiwa, and Pueblo dwellings, which are then cleverly inlaid into modern, vessel-like constructions. The earliest work was primarily monochromatic, um, very much involved with the repoussé technique. And there were some figures, as, and in 1989-1990, in there was a, a big change and the work became more architectural. What provoked that change? Uh, it's just an evolution. Um, I was looking at different styles of figures to put on pottery and Naturally, we had dwellings and, and we had Katsina figures. And we, of course, the carving tradition in Katsinas or Kachinas, as mm -hmm. it said in English, is well known. So I wanted to, to kind of represent a little of the feeling in that in a, in a pot. And, and, and I started to put that on a pot that is a Katsina head and then a, well, just a little piece of architecture. And then I put a little put a little half-inch relief arch, but I'd use Repose to push it out. But that started to develop. It was just a little piece of an arch. It was only you know, a half an arch, a quarter of an arch on a, on a pot, and it was very linear. It looked fine, but it was something different. I hadn't seen anything like that. But then ultimately that just began to develop. And then I learned to actually take whole sections of a uh, what would otherwise be a, a think of it as a uh, shouldered vessel but mm -hmm. pushed in mm -hmm. and push it in like in a volleyball that was under inflated uh, but not have the clay crack be at the right stage in your material this had a lot to do with developing the materials and finding out what our old potters had access to besides the clay and the temper they had other uh, certain things, uh, the volcanic clays and things that they could have certainly used. Mm -hmm. 
and, and got a really great paste or mixture of clay. Anyway, the, uh, by having that, and I, by that time in, in the 1990s, or, I was pretty sure I was either had something close to our ancestors uh, back several hundred years ago, or uh, if it wasn't, I had something as good as, because mm-hmm. <laughs> it really worked well. This allowed me to start to really make complex shapes, and, and then I was able to form in uh, multiple directions. That is, I could push and pull this clay in and out mm-hmm. uh, on different surfaces and um, still be in the original clay. That is, I, I, I wasn't adding anything to it at that point um, because it maintained the moisture uh, and the workability. And as a result of that, uh, I was able to start to actually create, for instance, uh, usually the cliff dwellings have a very concave erosion of sandstone so that it creates a cliff above it mm-hmm. and, and, and cut out. So I could start to actually produce that look. Mm-hmm. And it just slowly developed one step at a time. And now I I can have some really significant scenes. They're not replications of an actual scene, but they they carry the feel. And worth celebrating as well is our ability to form connections with other indigenous nations through shared experiences and solidarity, which becomes a powerful mode of learning, passing along stories, and building strong community ties that span across oceans, borders, and time. So in the Americas, the, that it was that timelessness, and uh, I, I remember the next thing we said after that, and namely uh, the National Museum of American Indian held a convocation between potters in all the hemispheres, and I, uh, I and Jody Falwell represented the Western portion of the United States uh, in terms of ceramics. And we had this exchange, a lot of translation going on. We had uh, Inca, uh, we had uh, Central Americans, and of course, Americans in Canada. Uh, so we had, they were speaking Quechua down there. So we had to <laughs> go through. Anyway, the point was, the feeling was w- what was common to us all uh, is that our, our we shared a common spirit beyond just the clay. Mm-hmm. We we certainly there was a lot of emotion on the part of the uh, Quechua speaking people and and the Central Americans. I mean, I can remember husbands and wives. I mean, they were all crying when we had to leave because we had shared um, experiences in our clay. I mean, we had to get earthy and down to the basics. Yes, different environments, different. We did things maybe a little differently, but in in the ultimate experience, we experienced the same thing. I could be from a modern world and from the highest scientific standpoint, but still, my experience was the same as their experience. So, oh, in, in a way, they knew me. Mm-hmm. They knew me through my clay, mm-hmm. which is, uh, we didn't make that point before. Uh, they mm-hmm. would know, Elizabeth would be known through their clay. Any, anybody indigenous would know somebody else. And perhaps even a modern potter would know us through our clay. I'm not sure. sure. But particularly if you dig your own clay and process your own, right. and it's part of the earth. So we're earthy. We mm-hmm. always said that we're mm-hmm. we're part of the earth. Mm-hmm. I actually have a time machine now, mm-hmm. and if I could go backwards a thousand years, I'd be comfortable. Mm-hmm. 
my aunt always explained that to me in different metaphors and ways. Uh, and, and we even dis- discussed briefly the other night being able to tell the personality of a potter mm-hmm. from examining mm-hmm. the pot. It's all part of the same arena of dealing with the ceramics. So mm-hmm. even different groups that we deal with today, when we can really just sit down and talk, we're, we finally we have a commonality. Al also discusses his personal relationship with Native Hawaiian artist Herb Kane, who is widely known for his depictions of storied Polynesian events, whether they be mythology, lived history, or a little bit of both. Again, nodding to the often unexpected, yet beautiful and potent relationships that today's indigenous artists build through their work as it develops into new forms. Herb uh, is kind of the historian for uh, Hawaiian people and recreated the hukulele and the navigation system to go with it. So there, there's navigation, mm-hmm. you know, and there's star navigation systems. Mm-hmm. And um, just the whole idea of recreating from petroglyphs, a little bit like I tried to recreate who and what we did in our ceramics. Different right. different things, but nevertheless, the, the, that whole feeling of t- going back and to the past and and pulling out what you think is right. Now, in terms of Herb, maybe he didn't get the vessel just right. He recreated the vessel and they've sailed it. So we stay in touch mm-hmm. and we have different theories about um, the sailing. Contact between Polynesia and in uh, the Americas, definitely. Mm-hmm. It happened. Mm-hmm. The question is what direction and the, and the next question is it's the wrong time frame. Uh, the time frames we're looking for, some of the transportation, like when I talked about the Valdivia pottery, if, if Betty Meggers and her ideas are right, there had to be other kinds of contact much earlier. Sometimes, or perhaps more often than not, the community that we find ourselves most connected to is the one we grew up right alongside. We love what we're doing. I think that's when that goes first, you know, that gives us a good, good showing to others. Mm-hmm. You know, these are ladies that are willing to help you whatever your question is, if we can. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because of our heritage. You know, that's how we grew up. And in fact, you know, I say today some of our problems is because the neighbors don't know each other. Mm-hmm. They should know each other. Mm-hmm. And then we can help each other. Mm-hmm. You know, when you need help, you know, in growing up in a village, a fishing village, we're all our family. We were different last names. Mm-hmm. We're still family. Mm-hmm. It's a good sense. Mm-hmm. And I think it's all part of our heritage. Mm-hmm. All part of being who we are, if we can. Mm-hmm. All in all, there is much to be celebrated in spite of our collective challenges that we and our ancestors have faced with regards to the perpetuation of our artistic practices and material culture. As Native people, we have consistently found ways to not only build on our traditions, 
but also create new ones as our work becomes shaped and molded, much like Al's ceramics, by outside influences, the pressures asking us to assimilate into a westernized way of life, the separation from our ancestral homelands and practices, and personal lived experiences that made each of us unique within the whole. All of these elements act as factors in not only the preservation of traditions from the past, but also in the creation and perpetuation of new practices that may become traditions for future generations. But as the meaning of native art evolves to include a vast expanse of varied expressions, stories, and techniques in response to an array of challenges and celebrations, a handful of questions become increasingly prevalent. What makes traditional native art distinct from the contemporary? And is the line between the two becoming more and more blurred? And does the term traditional refer to a certain context of time, a learned technique, or something else altogether? Perhaps it helps to provide clarity when we think about the fact that everything considered traditional today was once contemporary. Thus, the weaving and ceramic traditions practiced by artists like Lehua Domingo and Alcoyawema, as well as many other intergenerational customs of indigenous material culture, can be seen as contemporary expressions of practices that have histories going back hundreds and even thousands of years. When I was first weaving, um, it was just a plain color. That's because I just learned how to weave, I enjoyed weaving, and I just wove. Mm -hmm. But after I completed one hat and I had it on the floor, and my husband uh, pointed my attention to the hat, it looked like there were petals on the hat. It was a plain colored hat. Mm -hmm. But there on the floor, it looked like she had petals. Mm. She reminded me of the Mary of Flower mm -hmm. with, with all of her petals mm -hmm. all around, along the brim. Mm -hmm. And we both stood in awe looking at that. Was that due to the pattern of the weave? I have no idea, apparently, mm -hmm. because now mm -hmm. I have some sense of the placement of the brown and the white mm -hmm. in the pico, mm -hmm. if I want this to happen. Right. I know that this will happen if I did this. Mm -hmm. And I guess it started way back then without my realizing it. And that, I think, um, that evening, more I was inspired to learn to weave Anoni mm -hmm. from Cousin Gladys. She was the master. Mm -hmm. I think um, um, it said that all weavers have a signature, mm -hmm. which means that I can look at this hat, and I know that that's Susie's hat. I can look at that hat and say that that's Margaret's hat. Mm -hmm. They can look at my hats mm -hmm. and they'll say that's Lehua's hat. Furthermore, in many indigenous languages, including Olelo Hawaii, native Hawaiian language, the concept of art didn't exist and there was no direct translation for the word. Art was just a part of life, whether it be crafted objects of functional purpose, 
or modes of conveying stories and events through image, sound, and movement. And the ideas of traditional and contemporary weren't necessarily seen as polar opposites, because cultural practices were, and in many ways still are, viewed as part of a continuum passed from generation to generation. <laughs> as final, a final question for me, and then any final thoughts you might light have are, are welcome. But what in particular about the weaving is important to you? Oh, you know, Auntie, um, Cousin Gladys, mm-hmm. we're taught to, when we start to weave, to treat our work mm-hmm. as you would take care of a baby. Mm. Don't just, you know, discard her or live on a ground or whichever. Take good care of it. Mm-hmm. And I think um, this merit in that bit of advice. Mm-hmm. When you, like I always say, when you take care of the tree, the tree takes care of you. Mm-hmm. When you take care of your child, mm-hmm. the child will grow up and take care of you. Mm-hmm. And I think that that holds true of weaving. Mm-hmm. Again, the word respect. Mm-hmm. When you're respectful, whichever way, yeah. good things come back to you. That's good. Mm-hmm. Those things happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just take care of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can see too. No one, people listening won't be able to see, but how you're patting the hat. <laughs> and it's been the the hat has been with us the entire time. It's moved out from the port from the porch with you and here with you. I really haven't seen you without the hat. But maybe at dinner you left the hat at home. But other than that, this hat has been with us the entire no, time. No, no, that you mentioned it. That's right. Yeah, maybe that's why she came along. So, do these ideas of traditional versus contemporary speak more about the work being created by Native peoples now and in the past, or more to the expectations that are placed on Indigenous artists, regardless of their context in time, place, and medium? Are these labels even helpful at all? Or do they serve to further divide and label Native artists and practitioners in order to keep us separate from the larger conversations happening in contemporary art today. There are many different opinions on how this might be addressed. And I know Native artists who are good artists who don't want to be identified as Native artists. Mm-hmm. They're just American artists, mm-hmm. which is grand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but they really almost deny their culture by doing that. Some are able to, to manage both worlds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and be native, but at the same time be a, a top art painter or, or what have you, and, and not necessarily be looked at the genre of just American art. Right. right. But for the most part, American art forms a segment of, of America's art heritage, and um, it was looked at as a craft or what have you, uh, and it naturally did come out of culture that didn't really have art for art's sake. That's more of a European idea. We have the, the whole area of what's called primitive art, right. you know, whether it be right. Africa or the United States or South America. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a great market 
sure. for, for primitive art. We don't even know who the artists, quote, unquote, were. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's defined as art by uh, anthropologists. I think the human being has a spirit where when they saw the objects and their durability, uh, they were definitely encouraged. They had enough time. They were they had an agricult, agrarian society and they had uh, permanent structures. And so by definition, they had some extra time to actually work and, and, and perfect objects. There was a functional aspect to them in some way. Yeah, they were, oh, I should add, yeah, very definitely. There mm-hmm. were a lot of, and there was a big differentiation between cooking vessels and these funerary and, and ceremonial. It wasn't, uh, it had a functional aspect. And then if you made a, a, a ladle for the bowl, you decorated the ladle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so objects got decorated, mm-hmm. and there was an appreciation aesthetically for, for that. Mm-hmm. But, of course, it, there wasn't an economic base uh, in, in the sense of money. Uh, certainly objects we can see that Sakaki was traded mm-hmm. long mm-hmm. distances, mm-hmm. Know, possibly because of its durability and, and you know, for its, its aesthetics. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, uh, others came to appreciate it, so I can't say that we didn't have our own art appreciation. Perhaps these terms are only relative, and are fluid according to whom they are applied to and who is doing the labeling. Perhaps it is the contemporary challenges and celebrations that Native artists experience that are the qualifiers that make traditional arts something contemporary. And, on the other hand, maybe contemporary challenges cross into the realm of the traditional because of the approaches and techniques being used to address the challenges in the first place, regardless of the labels that are placed on indigenous artists and our work, we have always found a way to carry on the practices of our ancestors while finding new modalities to tell contemporary stories of our experiences today. By ensuring our customs don't remain static within history and allowing them to move in flux with a changing environment, we can weave the past with the present and gradually shape new futures for our communities informed by our collective experiences, obstacles overcome, and the steps forward taken together. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman at the Archives of American Art. It was edited by the team at Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble, with Harlan Parker conducting. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu articulated. The Archives is grateful to Lehua Uwakea for their time, insight, and inspiration. This guest-curated episode receives support from the Smithsonian American Women's History Initiative. Hi, I'm Jennifer Snyder, and I work as the oral history archivist at the Archives. Special thanks to Gabriella Seno for her contributions to this episode. If you enjoy Articulated, please consider rating and sharing it with others. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit aaa.si.edu support. Thank you.